Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John Cunningham is a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, and he can help you with financial decisions and future planning. He's been a big help to me and my family, and I commend him to you. You can reach him at 205-913-1720. I am so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Welcome back and thanks for joining. I am really excited today to share with you some thoughts about the grace of God. So let's just jump right in. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine and brother in Christ, Matt Bassford, wrote and posted on social media an article titled, Salvation by Grace. It is beautifully written and everyone needs to read it. And Matt just happens to be the perfect person to write it. Matt is well-educated. He was an attorney early on. He's devoted the last 20 years of his life to preaching. Recently, he was diagnosed with ALS. It has taken a heavy toll already on his body, and he knows he will not be around much longer for his wife and his two kids. Thankfully, he is pouring his energy into writing things that God's people desperately need to consider. His concepts about grace are on the nose, and in just a little while, I'm actually going to read that article for you. It won't take very long to do, but I think it will have a heavy impact on your life. So anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I read the article, shared it on my personal Facebook page, and then kind of forgot about it. Not because it isn't really good, but because I was flying out for seven days to go preach in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And for me at least, that was a really great week. I was very tired. There was lots of preaching and meals and studies and conversations But it was also very rewarding, and I received some guidance that I was seeking, which was an answered prayer. But I kept noticing in a lot of those conversations, even without me bringing it up, that God's people have a lot of questions about God's grace. There are Christians, not just in that area, but everywhere that I go, who have concerns at a perceived lack of understanding of how we are saved by grace, and really the inability or unwillingness to extend that same gracious hand to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as the week neared an end, I thought, I really need to go back and teach on that. A better understanding of God's mercies would do all of us a lot of good. But as I got out of bed early Saturday morning in Bowling Green to go catch a flight in Nashville back to Dallas, I kind of put it on the back burner again. I already had a couple of sermons built on the Holy Priesthood for the next day. And I figured I would get back to the grace idea before too long. So I board the flight home from Nashville at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. I was still really tired, so I thought, you know, I'm just going to sleep this whole flight. But I was in the middle seat where sleeping is almost impossible. It kind of reminds me of what the genie said in Aladdin. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. Well, it turns out, so will the middle seat on a Southwest aircraft if you even think about falling asleep. So after trying that for a little while, I opened my eyes and the woman sitting next to me by the aisle has a Bible-based journal out and she's doing some writing. And I was trying to find a way to start a conversation, so I reached down and pulled out of my bag my Bible and the ESM journal, and I wrote out a few prayers and I did some Bible reading. And as soon as I shut the Bible, she looked at me and said, you know, I usually bring my Bible 
but I didn't this time and I can't get it on my phone and I just really appreciate that you're doing that. And so we started a conversation and I told her why I was in Kentucky and some of what I was sharing and she looked at me with eyes wide and said, I was raised in the Church of Christ. And I was like, hey, that's really cool. But then she immediately goes into this. We were not taught grace. We didn't know what grace was. I had to leave the Church of Christ, to use her wording, in order to learn about God's grace and the Holy Spirit. So I took the next little while, and she was very kind to listen, and I explained that from here in the inside, that is, teaching amongst local churches of Christ, I'm trying to help God's people understand the beauty of God's grace and the value of extending that mercy to others. I took her through some of the things that I preached that week, and I really appreciate that she listened. I feel like at the very least, she knows that there are people among our fellowship who absolutely champion salvation by grace. So we talked for a while, and it went well, I think, and the plane landed, and we were heading over to the terminal, and we got to the point where the fastened seatbelt sign was turned off. And basically, simultaneous with that ping sound, a woman, one row in front of us, directly in front of me, popped her seatbelt off, stood up, turned around, hopped in her seat on her knees, leaned in toward the both of us, and said, I've been listening to your conversation for the last 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And she said, my husband and I were both raised in churches of Christ. And she looked me in the eye and she goes, there was no grace. We were not taught about the grace of God, and we felt like if we committed even one sin along the way that we were lost. There was just no confidence in our salvation. So they basically high-fived and talked a little bit, and they allowed me again to express that grace is central to at least my teaching. And they said something cordial like, hey, it's just nice to hear that your working needed change from the inside. And that was kind of it. We talked a bit at baggage claim, and I left. But on the way home, I was thinking, is this the way the world looks at believers like us? Or when people have left the fellowship of a local church of Christ, is that the impression that they take with them? That there really is no grace? And that we can't be confident of our salvation? And I guess more importantly today, what do you think about that? Maybe someone is listening right now saying, those ladies are absolutely right. Probably someone else is listening right now saying, those ladies are totally wrong. Maybe you're someone who says, I don't think they're right about that, and I don't think they're representing God's people correctly, but in truth, I guess I don't really know how God's grace works. Or maybe you're saying, I do believe I've been taught on how grace works, but honestly, I have a lot of insecurity about whether or not I'm saved. Wherever you are on that, I'm just increasingly convinced that more focus on salvation by grace in Christ is needed among all of God's people. So that brings me back to Matt's article, which again, I think is tremendous. I'm going to read the article for you without interjection or commentary. And while we won't have time today to dissect all of the little things that are within it, I will post the entire thing into the show notes. Afterwards, I will share some thoughts about it, and then we will discuss the two passages that are contained in the material. Okay, the article is titled Salvation by Grace. Recently, I have become an even louder proponent of grace, indeed of the naked necessity of grace, 
than I ever was before. I can tell from comments I've been getting on social media that this has made some brethren nervous. They reply with variations of, yes, but you have to do something. In light of this, I thought it would be useful to explain my thoughts more fully. Every day, I am confronted with the reality that in the next couple of years, I will die. The Bible tells me that I should be confident in the face of death, that I should contemplate the end of my life with hope rather than fear or despair. If so, that hope can have only one basis, and I am not it. I know myself too well. I believe that I am a better man than I have ever been before, but I also see more clearly the immense gap between my righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. If I have to be good enough, I assuredly have not been. I have not been diligent enough. I have not been wise enough. I have not been holy enough. I have not been loving enough. In these and so many other areas, I see no cause for confidence in my own merit. Yet, I am to be confident. Such confidence can only come from putting my trust in the grace of the Lord. It is so great that I no longer need to fret over the sufficiency of my own goodness. Whether that goodness be little or much, His grace is sufficient. So far, I know that I have said little to settle the nerves of my concerned readers. If indeed we rely on the grace of Christ because we can make no meaningful contribution to our salvation, doesn't that lead to an apathetic, do-nothing faith that is unconcerned with sin because God is just going to slosh a bucket of grace all over it? In the first place, I acknowledge that this is not merely a hypothetical. There are millions, both in the Lord's church and outside of it, who treat the grace that they imagine they have received as a license to be worldly. Second, though, the question was answered 2,000 years ago in Romans 6. Too often we go to Romans 6 to find support for our beliefs about baptism, but fail to reckon with the argument that the chapter makes. According to Paul, grace does not release us from the need to do anything. Instead, it puts us under obligation. We are freed from sin, but we become slaves of righteousness. If we truly understand ourselves in this way, the notion of being do-nothing Christians is laughable. Admittedly, earthly slaves are not known for diligence, but even they will work hard when under the eyes of their master. We can never escape the supervision of our master. We must consider ourselves as having no self-will left in the things of the Spirit because we have wholly given over that will to Jesus. We don't even have standing to ask how much or how little we should give or whether it will be good enough. We already have signed over everything. This dovetails with James' discussion of justification by works in James chapter 2. Biblical scholars have pitted Paul and James against each other for hundreds of years. However, they should have noted that James didn't merely cite Abraham, one of the most illustrious figures of the Old Testament, as an example of justification by works, he also chose Rahab. I've watched Bible classes struggle with Rahab for years. How could God exalt a prostitute who helped the Israelites by lying? However, that's not a difficulty with the text. It's the point. We only become confused when we refuse to class ourselves with Rahab. Rahab did not justify herself by being good enough. She justified herself through the action that is inseparable with genuine faith. Instead of continuing on to destruction with the people of Jericho, she cast her lot with the people of God. It is the same with us. If her service was tainted by lying, 
How much more is our service tainted by envy, pride, carelessness, indifference, and lack of love? All of us are in the business of offering blemished sacrifices. Nonetheless, like Rahab, we serve anyway. We too have cast our lot with the people of God and are justified in His sight. The grace of the Bible is not a blank check that allows us to sin all the more. It is a demand that we put to death the old man of sin. None of us will ever succeed in so doing. None of us will ever come close. However, our souls do not depend on our success or failure. The same grace that asks for everything offers everything too, so that we may rest our hope not on ourselves, but on the salvation available only through Christ. Okay, that is really good, and I encourage you to find it and read it for yourself. But in the last five minutes or so, I just want to talk about the two passages he references. If you are looking for a better grasp on how we are saved by grace through faith, then read Romans chapters 1 through 6. The letter begins in chapter 1 by noting that there is sin all around us in the world. But then in chapter 2, he turns his message to the religious people of the day, including you and me. The world sins, but so do you. Yes, so did you, but also so do you still. It may not be the exact sin of the world. Maybe you don't rob someone, but maybe there's someone next to you who has need and you walk right by. In chapter 3, he just decodes it and says, no one is righteous, not even one, and everyone will always on their own fall short of the glory of God. So in chapters 4 and 5, he introduces Jesus, the great and perfect sacrifice who loved us enough to give his life so that his righteousness can be our salvation. We are encouraged to believe in him, that we can be reunited with God because of him. He is grace personified. If you believe that he can make you more than you deserve to be, then in chapter 6, you're baptized into a relationship with him. You are united with the power of his death, and you come forth to a new life, a life that belongs to him. You are so grateful that he has saved you, that he has made you righteous, that he represents you in heaven, that he will take you home, that you give your life over to him. The text talks about being enslaved to God, but I'm not afraid of that. I was previously enslaved to sin with no merit beyond simple passing pleasures, but now I am indebted to God. I belong to God. I am owned and ruled by God. This is by no means a warrant to sin, and it's not okay to just go around sinning, but it accepts this important reality that even though you will continue to make mistakes, you will never accept them or live in them or allow them to grow because you belong to God. And on God's part, he's willing to accept that, which is pretty amazing. He's willing to accept servants who still do dumb things, but that's the beauty of it. If he started measuring you on the things that you did, you'd have ruined it long ago, but he is measuring you by the power of Jesus' blood and the representation of a beautiful high priest and king speaking up in heaven on your behalf. That is grace, and it makes me want to serve him to the best of my ability every day. Now, his reference to Rahab in the book of James is also very interesting, because we can buy into this message that after we've been Christians for a while, we need God's grace less. 
we start getting pretty good at this Christian thing, and the better we get, the kind of more elevated and worthy we are. Grace gets smaller as we get better. That is false and dangerous and ridiculous. That kind of thinking leads to two mistakes. Either you start believing the hype and you elevate yourself over others, and you perpetuate the garbage that has affected those two ladies on the plane, or you believe that you're supposed to be better than everyone else, and the reality of the sin in your life just makes you walk around with a ton of guilt, feeling like you're broken and lost, and nobody even knows it. But there's a better way than that. There's a way in which you understand that your life is devoted to doing better for God, but you will never get that just right. You are called to repent of it and do your best, but you are not called to some elevated plane of sinlessness that starts to draw merits. No Christian should ever behave in that way, and no one else should ever believe that that's the goal. Otherwise, they will always feel like there's no way that God's going to save them. And if that's how I felt about the Lord, I'd run away too. It is a powerful idea to look at Rahab the harlot. Her past was terrible. She was a prostitute. Her present behavior wasn't super. She got scared and she lied about hiding the spies. And yet, she leaned towards a life in God and pursued it. And God graciously accepted her and even brought her into the line of David and ultimately Jesus. My favorite part about Basford's article is calling you to see Rahab as you. Maybe we should all get t-shirts that say, I am Rahab. Okay, maybe not. But the idea is this. I get scared and do dumb things. Maybe I lie. Maybe I hide. Maybe I gossip. If past failures or present mistakes disqualify me, I am disqualified. But if I am justified by genuine faith, by the refusal to disbelieve, or accept that bad behavior, then I start to appreciate how amazing God's grace is not just for really sketchy people like Rahab, but really sketchy people like me. I come to appreciate that I am saved by grace through faith and that because of what God continues to lavish upon me, I will do the very best I can every day to love and obey him. Never, not for one moment devoid of gratitude and thanksgiving and humility. The truth is, willful disobedience to the word, as I was sharing on that flight, will disqualify you from salvation. Not because it makes you any worse of a person or any less worthy than anyone else, but because it neglects to appreciate the love of God in your life, the great and enduring gift of Jesus that sustains you, and the life hope that comes from full and total surrender to salvation by grace. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. And if you're just in search of deeper Bible study or you want to share the message of Jesus with the children in your life, remember to go to creationtorevelation.com. This wonderful company run by Christians provides beautiful illustrations of scripture from beginning to end, putting the spotlight on Jesus. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.